This is Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus, and happy to be back with another wonderful talk that we excerpted out of Ramdas's catalog, very, very deep into the past, actually, in 1969. And um, yeah, October 18th, 1969, at Yale University. Isn't that interesting? I mean, so this is just after he came back, because he came back uh, in 68 at some point. And uh, in fact, this is a kind of an unusual talk in which Ramdas really gives a little bit of the historical perspective from him about how all this happened in terms of him getting out there and teaching and giving lectures and so on. And what happened around the farm that his father had in New Hampshire that well, many of us went to in those couple of summers, 69, 70, and how uh, he, one thing, it was interesting to note, although we experienced it uh, when we were there, that he was really, he made a point of, of really representing all the traditions, the spiritual religious traditions uh, from around the world. So they'd be doing Buddhist meditation and Hindu chanting and Sufi dancing and so on. And that was really important to him. That was fun to hear about. So this, this podcast, rather this talk that's in this podcast, is called The Way of Harmony. And the interesting thing about it is, the, so there's, it's, a, it's a bit of a hang uh, it's uh, recorded questions and answers um, at, from that time. So the way of harmony in the first question is about Hitler. I mean, really? And it was about should Hitler have done what he did? So uh, this, uh, the, the uh, response from Ram Dass was uh, of the um, reality of what made Hitler and the reality of how everybody in that country and, and so on responded to him in that particular time is the creation of tremendous karma, collective karma, and he goes into that. And... Uh, Gee, if we think about where we are right now, or have been since the pandemic, there's been a lot of forces that we have contributed and created by our karma, by the actions that we've taken over a vast amount of time, all the way back hundreds and hundreds of years with slavery to more recent time since the Industrial Revolution and what we have done to the planet. And it is very collective. So... Uh, and interestingly, Ramdas' uh, response to the guy that asked, guy or gal, that asked that question, and um, he says, you, ma you made the choice to ask the question, but in fact, the whole thing was built into you so that you would ask that question at that moment. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It comes out of, out of a whole set of probabilistic things in you. 
And so that's what led him off to talk about the power of natural forces. There's uh, one, well, for me, it was very poignant when he talked about the, uh, in talking about the collective karma of us creating and interacting with nature, then the power of natural forces to push back, shall we say, which we've experienced. And he talked about, yeah, and one of them is a pandemic. And here we are. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, now, we can't say it's prescient because there have been pandemics forever, but the power of this particular one, not since 1918, huh? Mm. Yeah, difficult stuff to understand, collective uh, karma, and how the individual is completely connected to the greater whole and uh, and the ricocheting of vibrations and actions that happens is extraordinary and the power of uh, of the mind just thoughts themselves create karma so there's this great uh, podcast. There's there's somebody I really love. Uh, he's got a podcast on the network, actually. Robert Svoboda. And he did, uh, he had a teacher in India that had the greatest uh, take on karma and ways of explaining it. It was really quite unbelievable. And it's the Agora books, and it's the third one, The Law of Karma. And... Uh, it really helps to understand a little bit. So that's a suggestion. Somebody will put that up in the show notes. The other interesting thing that jumped back at me, out at me, listening, you know how we walk around day to day? We absolutely 100% believe everything that's going on, We everything in our lives, we are doing. We are really doing it. And if we didn't do it, it wouldn't happen, whatever that might be. Or if we did, we think, okay, we did do it, and what's coming back is really unpleasant. Whatever it is, we're completely involved. And, of course, karma again, actions, reactions, pleasant or otherwise unpleasant. So he talks here about, so the... Well, I have a great example, actually. Someone I quote all the time. He was a major mentor of ours, Casey Tuari. We're actually getting close to finishing a film about him. We have wonderful footage of him and really far out stuff from India footage. And he just constantly, he was Mr. Mindfulness, okay? And he just constantly would remind us, no matter how caught we were getting, or not how caught, because we were pretty caught most of the time, but he would never cease to say things like this to me after I'd be getting all frustrated and flustered about what it is I thought I needed to do in that moment, and I was just verbalizing it around him, and he'd go, my boy... If you think you are doing it, you are lost. And then I'd come back to zero. So Ramdas talks about this. If you think, if, uh, 
even though you realize, he says, you are not a decider of the whole business, the doer. You are still part of a process. You realize you're part of the process, but not the doer decider. And, of course, when you get to a point of fairly high accomplishment, spiritual accomplishment, you end up living more in in the Tao, the harmony with everything. And here's the most important point of all, that when you hear this, you'll, I think, just, it's an emphasis, obviously, I'm making because I think it's so important. But the more, it's, and it's, it's not something that, oh, you got to wait 40 years and then boom, it'll happen. It's the day-to-day work on ourselves. And the more conscious we become and move more towards the harmony that Ramdas is talking about, the less you are capable of creating, this is his words, conditions which increase the illusion for you and for everyone else around you, for your fellow man, he said. So if anybody asks, what's the point of this whole deal? Here's a major point. Because it affects both your personal karma and collective karma. The more conscious you become, the less you're capable of creating conditions which increase the illusion and the suffering and everything else. So, uh, very, very important. Very so. Very so, as they say in India. So, uh, so here we go. It is called The Way of Harmony. And it starts off with Hitler. <laughs> I think that's crazy. But uh, thanks to Nathan for finding this little gem from October 18th, 1969 at Yale University. So this is Ramdas. Here and now, this is also, by the way, the 50th anniversary of Be Here Now, the publication of Be Here Now. And we have ongoing celebratory stuff. We have this wonderful eight-week course that's uh, moving along wonderfully with a few thousand people. And we, uh, if you missed it, by the way, make sure you're on the mailing list of ramdas.org so that uh, you do see the announcements aside from seeing stuff on social media. And uh, we got some more stuff coming up towards the end of the summer, into the fall. And uh, yeah, do get your email in there so that we, uh, you can get word of what we're doing. This is Ramdas Here and Now on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and catch the incredible plethora of teachers and thought leaders from Ramdas to Krishnadas to Jack Cornfield to what I do on Mind Rolling and Sharon Salzberg and Nikki Walton and Conda Mason. I mean, it's just, uh, we're pretty proud of it. And so thank you for being here and thank you for being a part of it. And we shall see you next time. Should Hitler have done what he did? So easy to say no, isn't it? Um, Hitler did what he did, and you do what you do, and I do what I do now. 
At any point, you and I and Hitler have a subjective experience that we are making choices. In fact, we are merely living out karma, and you can see that. For example, the fact that you ask the question about Hitler is the result of the fact that you have lived through a certain time, you have read certain books, you have thought certain thoughts, you have had certain experiences, you have known certain people. The result of that is you ask this question. That question is determined. In other words, it's a highly probable question out of your head at that moment. It's a highly improbable question, say, out of um, uh, your head at that moment. Okay. In other words, you experienced it like you made the choice to ask that question. But in fact, the whole thing was built into you to ask that question at that moment. Now, that's at the level of determinism in the sense that it just didn't come out of nowhere. That question didn't just suddenly, uh, it comes out of a whole set of probabilistic things in you. Probabilistic things in you. Now, Hitler, um, the Hitler phenomenon is awesome because it's just like earthquakes and things like that. It shows, it shows the power of natural forces, which are always scary. Uh, blights and uh, epidemics and things like that show the forces of nature, hurricanes and stuff like that, whole villages inundated under rocks. And in a way, you see the power of nature of which man's desires, ego desires, are part of it in the same way as rocks tumbling are part of it. They are all part of nature. And that's, it's, that's the divine mother doing the destructive thing, and it's horrible. In the same way that there's creation of new villages and new things and hope and love and beauty, and that's all beautiful. And there are all the people that are the, the non-Hitlers who do the other end of it. Now, it may be that you've got to understand further that there is no human being that in their inner place, although, no, that isn't true, but I would say that most people think they are doing the right thing from where they're sitting their subjective experiences, as you could see from the Nuremberg trial. They didn't say, I am doing evil, but I'll keep doing it. They said either, they said, well, I was just following orders, which is what the doctor is saying, I've got to preserve life. I'm just following orders. Or they were giving some other justification, but it wasn't like it was, they were saying about a master race, which was a philosophy of idealism for mankind, distorted though it may have been at one level. Now, when you start to go into eternal space and time, you begin to do different takes of these, these natural disasters and phenomena like wars and pestilence and so on. You see them as horrendous things. And if you are at, in the situation at any moment, you may take action to, to stop it because you, your actions always you see. I'll tell you about that in a minute, about how you decide what your actions must see. But when you get into eternal time and space, you begin to see it in a slightly different way. There was a book by... René Dumas called Mount Analog. And in Mount Analog, it's a group of Europeans who compute mathematically the presence of a mountain higher than any known mountain in the world, and it's an island. And the reason nobody's ever found it is because there's a magnetic field around it such that when you direct the ship towards it, the ship goes around it thinking it's going in a straight line. Because it's got this weird magnetic field around it. But they figure out that if they get on the west side of it looking east at sunset or sunrise under certain certain kinds of astronomical configurations they'll see the channel and get their way through and they scheme and they plan and they get through and they get to the base camp and there's a a village there at the bottom of the mountain and then they climb the mountain and they have many experiences and this is all a metaphor for the journey into consciousness as you can see now rene Dumas wrote this book he was a nitrous oxide sniffer in paris in the 30s okay <laughs> 
And he died somewhere along the way for some way or other, I don't know, nothing to do with nitrous oxide. And his wife published the book posthumously and included a quote, which was the last quote that was to be in the book, which was the Captain Sogol, which is Logos spelled backwards. Captain Sogol's last quote was this, and the place was called Mount Analog. He said, by our calculation, thinking of nothing else, by our desires abandoning all other hopes, by our efforts renouncing all bodily comforts, we managed to gain entry into this new world. So it seemed to us. So it seemed to us. But if we were able to approach Mount Analog, it was because the invisible doors of that invisible country were opened to us by those who guard them. The cock crowing in the milky dawn thinks that its call raises the sun. The child howling in a closed room thinks that its cry opens the door. But sun and mother follow courses set by their own being. Those who see us though we cannot see them, open the door in response to our puerile calculations, our unsteady desires, and our awkward efforts with a generous welcome. Now, to understand that quotation, from where I'm sitting, that is true. That is, I think it is, it is the height of absurdity that man thinks he's doing what he's doing. And at the same moment, that is not license for doing nothing. Because doing nothing is just doing something else. There is no way to not do anything, to do nothing. No way to do nothing, as long as you're in a human birth. So even though you can accept the fact that you are not the decider of the whole business, you can still be a part of a process. You are a part of a process. You can recognize your participation in a process do exactly what it is that needs to be done, which may indeed be exactly the same thing you would have done had you thought you were doing it, because you end up living by the Tao. That is, you end up being in harmony with the universe. And the way of harmony is that you no longer, the more conscious you become, the less you are capable, the less you are capable of creating conditions which increase the illusion for you or your fellow man. And killing, stealing, lying, all those things increase the distance between human beings. And therefore, you become less and less capable of doing those things. You don't become capable of them because you have bought an external moral prescription that they're wrong, however. You just see that you can't do them because you can't do them because water can't flow upstream because you just can't do them. Because doing them just feels like you're swimming hard against it. It's not like surfing. To surf means to go with it. And to go with it means to be in harmony with all the forces. And if this kid is standing here hungry and I got wheat in my pocket, I got to put the wheat in that kid's mouth. Because those are the way the forces are. If I'm open to the forces, if I want to close myself off so I don't see that kid, then I can do that. But that's the thing. That's the cost. That's where possessions become too costly. That's where lying costs too much. That's where protecting your own life sometimes becomes costing more than it's worth, which is what Christ said when he said, you must lose your life to save it. And when he says to the young wealthy man, give up all your possessions and follow me, and the kid can't do it. Because as long as he's got those possessions, there's got to be somebody that's them. 
Maybe somebody is them. Well, I see energy as just green energy, and it's moving from person to person, and you move it along, and you, you know, resources and food and shelter, and it just keeps spreading around, and it's like fluid, it's like liquid, it's all green energy, and some people call it money, or the power of, you know, I don't sit holding it, worshiping it, protecting it, counting it, it's like counting your breath, counting air intake. How much air is there? Is there enough for all of us? Not, I want my fair share. Now, there is a fear in the culture that if we didn't all sit around thinking about how to make it good, it would be bad. Because that's based on the Freudian model that man basically is an id-driven being of completely socially unacceptable animal impulses. That is still the identification of man with his natural being, his being in nature. That is still a complete refutation of the spirit. That is, that is still a totally profane take of who man is. And in the profane take of man, everybody better think full-time to keep us from wiping ourselves out. And the sacred take of man, that isn't the way it works at all. is isn't the way it works at all. And the funny thing is, the sacred and the profane may lead to the same behaviors, but the behaviors may have entirely different effects because of the vibrations with which you do them. I can feed a kid in Biafra because I feel guilty because I have so much, and the kid in Biafra ends up hating me, as is the case with America in most of the world. Or I can, see, there's a thing in my yoga that says, this, my yoga is really beautiful because it says everything, see? And it says, it says in it, there is no giving or receiving of gifts. Now, does that mean that I can't ever accept, take anything from anybody? No, that doesn't look like it. It means that as long as that person is attached to thinking he is the giver and I am the receiver and this is something he has to give, forget it. Because by accepting that, I am entering into a subject-object contract with him, which is ending up keeping us both apart. On the other hand, if he has this stuff and says, here, I have this energy, you need it, you use it. Like, here we are, and there's this energy. Then, groovy. I mean, like last summer, some guy came up, and he was very uh, obnoxious. He was very fierce, very heavy, neurotic guy. And I finally threw him out of the darshan, which is the only guy I ever had to throw out of darshan. And he got into his Maserati, and he was about to drive away, and he left a number of things for me. He left a bag of very special hashish. So I, the guy that brought it to me, I said, keep it. He left a bottle of white wine. The guy that brought it to me, I said, keep it. And he left on my steering wheel a check for $1,000. And I had at the time $26 in my bank account. And man, I come out of a family where, you know, like, man, that's money, you know, hold on. And it took me a day to work it through, but... I worked through, nevertheless. I stuck it in an envelope, and I sent it back, and I said, neither of us can afford this. And two days later, a very beautiful guy, John Lilly, who is a very good researcher with dolphins and so on, a very beautiful guy, taking a lot of LSD and sensory deprivation tanks. He said, uh, man, I got this extra bread. Why don't I lay some on you? And he gave me $500. Just like that. And that was beautiful money, and I could take that easily, because there was no, there was no subject-object thing about it. And that's why you realize that most of the things between parents and children have that horrible place in it that they are designed where they're keeping everybody stuck in their roles, which is separating them more by carrying out the, the habits. Like my father continually, here's my father sitting with a million dollars and I'm sitting with 20 bucks. And I can't figure how I'm going to get from here to there. And he says to me, do you need anything? And I must say no, because I can't need anything. 
Because if I don't have the money, I won't go wherever I'm supposed to go. I, the way it is. And the fact is, he wants, if I will say I need something, he will say, here, I will give it to you, which is ex taking us into a contract that keeps us both separate. And it's a contract that I can't afford because I'd rather groove with him. I say, no, man, I don't need anything. You know, I want you, and I help him figure out how he can enjoy his money. All you've got to do is say, here, here's a thousand dollars and I'll take it. But he never does that. Because he can't just share, he's got to set up contracts. And those contracts are things that I can't enter into. It's impossible for me to enter into them because I realize that every time I do it, we both lose. And all I end up with is a thousand dollars and that's not worth it. And the problem is that your karma is all those contracts you have made that you've got to get finished with. And every time you say get turned on if you're a guy by a chick and you want to make it with her, but you don't really want to be with her, you just want to make it with her, then you are getting into exactly that same thing. You are creating a subject-object contract. And that is a, a new karmic headache for you. Because at the same time, you have increased that other person's isolation. Because how many people in our culture make it physically? I mean, I've got a sign on the visor of my, I've got a groovy old Buick uh, limousine that I drive around the country, a 38 limousine, and uh, with Rama license plate. Right? And on the, on the sign, on the visor, it says, um, what does it mean if two outer coverings embrace? Because I'm driving along the street, and there's this something that arouses some desire in me. And my eye goes up to the visor and says, what does it mean if two outer coverings embrace? Because I see somebody on the street, and I don't, I don't want to make contact with their spirit. Because I'm already in contact with their spirit, just going inside. It's a desire, it's lust. And the thing about the, the concept lust, which it sounds like an old biblical term, the concept of the thing about lust, the reason why lust is so such a rough concept is, because it is profane, because it involves keeping something object in order to desire it. While the minute you get into the other level where you're making it all sacred, then you have to establish that place where here we are, we are one, and then whatever sexual dance ensues, ensues. But the dance ensues out of the oneness, not out of the two-ness. You're not keeping the person there in order to lust for them. See, and the problem is, can you give up your lusting fantasies and still have sexual gratification. And as I said last night, the fact is, until you give it all up, you don't get any of it. You don't get enough. And once you've given it all up, you get it all. That's the rule of the game. You hear that? As long as you reach for it, you'll never get enough. You will never get enough. And I've got many of my friends in the Playboy organization who attest to that. <laughs> you never get enough. As long as you're lusting for it. And the minute you give it up, I don't mean anything to do with actions now. I'm talking about attachment to desire. Attachment to desire. Then you start to enter into another space, and in that space you have it all. Because in that space, it all becomes sexual. I mean, I am more and more totally, totally in love with everybody all the time. And I don't feel that I am stopping my sexual life. I just feel it's broadening and broadening and broadening until it includes everything all the time. I've still got a long way to go, but it's sure getting very far out. <laughs> I mean, it blows my mind because I got to go through all my models of, you know, like, wow, that's strange. <laughs> Turned on by a rock. <laughs> <laughs>
the spirit, it is all sexual. It's just not all the Freud model. It's not all the genital sexuality. It's all the merging and the oneness and the liquidity and the, the, the you know. Well, the whole karmic trip is a unique trip. The karmic trip includes your, your heredity, your genes, all of the, your environment, every experience you ever had, all the people you ever met, the people you walk down the sidewalk and see, that's all one package. That's a totally unique package. And you are born into that package. That package didn't exist before. It was created just to work out certain things for you. Desire creates the universe. Your desires create your universe. You know nothing other than your own desires. That's all that the world consists of is the projection of your own desires. So people share desires, share others, parts of each other's universe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, it usually works out that way. Like psychologists hang out with psychologists and athletes hang out with athletes and people hang out with people generally. There's a very little, there's some cross thing because people feel they should be liberal and they have a few other types of friends. But generally, hippies hang out with hippies and, you know, there's we and them, there's us and them. Until you finally get a reference group where everybody's us. And it doesn't matter who you're with at any moment. Because it's all the same. Because everybody's God. Here we all are. We're always right here. Who will we be this time? You want to be a drunk on the street? You want to be a leading physicist? You want to be the bus driver? Who? I once stopped at a gas station. A shell station. A man came and started to wash my windshield and all, and I have this nice car, and he started talking about cars and how he had one of these. And there was a meat strike in New York. He brought a ton and a half of turkeys in the car into New York City and sold them down in the market district. I was, we talked, and I was looking at him just thinking, his God, being gas station. And all I felt was total love for him. And the warmth of that thing, he felt that thing. I mean, as weird as I looked, he still felt that thing. And I had no way of relating to him, really, because he's not interested in what I'm interested in at that level of interest. He doesn't read or think or relate or meditate or any of that stuff. He just sells gas. He said, um, would you like to look at my car? Sure. Got out one. He had a Mercedes Benz. He looked at his Mercedes. He said, um, gee, I'd like to have you meet my wife. She's upstairs. Okay. Want to stay for lunch? Okay. Stay for lunch. Stay for the evening. He showed me everything. I realized I can settle down and live right there for the rest of my life. And it was perfectly all right. And I began to realize that every moment was that same moment, that everybody was family. There wasn't every home, home home. The home was the place you were at at the moment. I have no home now. I just go. I just flow. Wherever I am is the only place I ever needed to be, ever. And it was all for this moment that I'm here. And the moment I walk out the door, no, none of you exist anymore in these forms. And yet, the, to the extent that we've made contact, we all know we've made contact with one another, and we're always right here. And when we meet a year from now, we'll look at each other and say, yeah, right, here we are again. And there's nothing we have to do for, to, or about one another, in most cases. Sometimes there are some people that have specific problems that need something or other. But generally, people, I can just pass people, and it's enough that we have the direct moment, and we say, yeah, right, here we are. And that's it. That's all that has to be done. 
Because that, that touches that place where you make that contact. And the contact takes just as long as it takes me. You know, now what I find is that I have maybe uh, 15 or 20 tapes that have been made of these darshans and that there's now these tape distributing companies and they start to distribute the tapes and the tapes do it. Person sits down and listens to four hours of a very high tape and we made the contact. And I'm meeting all these people who are totally in love with that place that was coming through me and it has nothing to do with me. We made the contact. And I dig that the pure I am, the more I make that contact with everybody I meet all the time. And it's only when I get caught in my own identity that I lose it. Because I'm busy. I'm busy doing something. I think I'm doing something. I don't have time to. It was a little scary to me because um, in, um, in New York, I ran uh, public darshans for three weeks. I had this uh, sculpture studio on 77th Street. And every night I was there for three weeks. And people came and they paid a buck or two or something like that. And came in. First week, 40 people came. And the second week, 60 to 100 came. And the third week, the place was like, mom, turning away. And the same people kept coming back more and more. And this place kept getting higher and higher and higher and higher. Until finally, I would get there, and I would go and sit down, and I would start speaking within about a minute after starting to speak, this thing would take over. I would just, like, go on automatic. I just sit doing my mantra, and the speaking would go on. It was the people speaking. And I'd speak for three, four hours, and we'd chant together, and we, the place would be, here we'd be on 77th Street and 3rd Avenue, and it'd be not, just like, right in that room. It was just absolutely here. We just all went here. There was nothing ahead of us. We'd gone beyond words. And then people would silently drift out into the street. And after maybe 150 of them, 150 of them were gone, there were maybe 30 left, I would just stay in meditation until most of them were gone. And around, what, 12 o'clock at night, I'd get up and I'd start to stagger around the room. And I was in a very funny place in my head. I mean, I was using no drugs, but I was in such a funny state because the person who had spoken, or the vehicle that had spoken, I had turned me off so much there wasn't any me to come back into. There was no role to come back into. And they would, like, people would come up and bring me flowers and fresh bread and just come up to touch me or to love me. And I was like, wow, man, no ego can handle all that. You know, and there was no ego around to, I, my ego would love to have had it all. It would love to collect it all, but it would have drowned in it. It was much too much for any one person to have that much love. And it had nothing to do with me at all. And that was the funny thing, because there was no role to be in. There was nobody to be at all under those conditions. And I just staggered around being really confused, totally confused. I wouldn't, couldn't figure out what I was supposed to be or do or act. Because now what I really think of, I just feel more and more that I'm just getting to be like a renter robot. You know, and you just move the renter robot around, you put it in a place, and you crank it up, and out comes the stuff. And it, has, it goes on and on and on, and you stop it and say, well, time to stop, okay? Turn off the hamburger machine, put it away, keep it serviced, protected, bring it out, and it does its thing some more. Feed it, care for it. It has nothing to do with it, particularly. It's not saying, i got to make more hamburgers. There's nothing I could possibly be collecting that I could see that I want. What could I want? What could, what could he want? He wants it all, but what is he going to do with it? 
How much love does a human being need? Power, fame, what good? What are, what are you going to do with it? I mean, I've lived around so many people that had power, fame, stuff, and what, where, you know, they're obviously they don't have enough. And they got lots of it. Little meeting of the President's Club, and there's all these guys with power and fame. Look at how much power and fame I have. Well, I have all this power and fame. Oh, you have all that power and fame. Wow. And there they are, and it's not enough. You can just tell it. You can tell it in your eyes. When I came back from India, I just went into a cabin and I just sat in the cabin and did my work of my for three or four months. And um, one day I was going to town for groceries and my father said, here, I just got a new car, take it, try it. And I thought that was pretty funny. And so I took a big new Cadillac and I went to town to buy groceries. And I saw some hippies and I waved at them. And they came into the store and when I came out, they said, man, you got any acid? I said, well, we thought a connection was coming from Boston. We saw a guy with a beard and a big Cadillac. He said, you must be the connection. <laughs> so I said, geez, I'm sorry. I'm not that kind of connection. <laughs> and uh, we talked for a little while. And they asked where I lived. And I set up the lake. And they said, could they come and visit? And I said, sure. I told them where I live. They had never heard of my drug or anything. And they came up and visited a few times. Then they brought their friends, and then they brought their parents, and then the parents brought the ministers, and then some of the parents invited me to speak to the Indian Forum at the University of New Hampshire, and then uh, a postcard was sent from India from Bucks County Seminar in Pennsylvania, and I answered that, and they said since I was back, would I come and give a weekend, and then they asked if I give a lecture in New York City, and then I just kept doing the thing. I just, I never create anything in my head. I just responded. And I respond as, you know, as much as I can feel the harmony of it all. But I don't, I used to be a promoter, you know, I used to hustle. If there's nothing to hustle, because there's nothing to sell. Because there's no game, there's no game that I, there's no, there's no point to collect. So all I am is a vehicle, I'm just doing my thing. And I can't assess what effect this has or what effect it has to have, or what's good or what's bad. It's just happening, because it's happening, and you're hearing what you're hearing, and I'm doing what I'm doing. That's the way it all is. And I've been traveling. I spent six weeks out at Big Sur. And I spent some time in New Mexico. I went to a Benedictine monastery. I spent some time with some Catholic brothers living with them. Then I went to New Hampshire. I came back there just to sit there all summer, and people started to come and come. And pretty soon my father said, they're all so beautiful, why don't they stay around? So he, he offered them land, and pretty soon there was a whole community going there. It was like 50 people with tents and building buildings, and we, we built a huge meditation house, and we had meditations and did sushi dancing and all this stuff. And weekends. More and more people kept coming until the last weekend there were like 250 people coming a day to come to sit at Darshan. To just sit around like some people from Franklin, local people, the Rotary Club asked me to come and speak. <laughs> the first year I got back to this little conservative Republican town. They spent all their time wondering whether I, I just went, see, I had no game. I had no hustle. So there was no reason that I could threaten them. I just sat. But the police, chief police figured I was the big pusher in the East. He called in the federal people to investigate me, and they were building all these big dramas about that I was using my father's estate to push. Them. 
because these young drug users were coming up to visit me. And I kept saying, tell the chief he's welcome to come anytime he wants. He doesn't need any letters from the courts. He's welcome to come and investigate, ask me any questions. I'm always sitting right here. And there was nothing he could do. I mean, you know, all he could do was fume. And uh, then one of the mothers wrote an article in the Concord Monitor about holy man comes to Franklin. And then uh, sort of a wild-eyed lawyer in Franklin decided that he was to have the secret program for the Rotary that he'd have me. And he had me come to the Rotary as sort of an act of defiance. And then the Rotary asked me if I would mind if the mayor's drug committee came to the Rotary meeting also. I said I thought it would be great. And they had the biggest Rotary meeting they'd had in years, middle of summer, and they told me I could speak for 20 minutes. And two and a half hours later, nobody was moving. Nobody was moving. I mean, they were just stoned out of their heads, the entire Rotary. <laughs> and we were talking about God and the Spirit, and it was fantastic. It was really high, because all I had is one word on the lectern, us. <laughs> we're all us, like, you know. They kept thinking of me as him, but I refused to be him. I'm just us. <laughs> that was fantastic. And I said to the mayor, at the meeting, I said, Mr. Mayor, I realize I'm weird. I'm here with beard and beads, and I know that I've been connected to drugs, and I don't put down the drugs, and I do advise the young people, and I, you know, but I said, I don't think I represent a force that's destructive in this society. But I make the statement to you, if you are the council, feel at any moment along the way that I should leave Franklin, that it's threatening to your community, I will leave the next day. That's a promise. And that blew their minds, because I said it, I gave, I gave all the power to them. And they all came rushing up, no, we want you to stay. And the mayor put in the newspaper, I feel this man is a great contribution to our community. And, <laughs> And the Baptist minister put, this man brought me back to the spirit. I had become so involved in social communities. And the local gas station man said, uh, when you forget about his beard, he's a great guy. <laughs> and one of the mothers said, uh, I send my children to him. He's very good. <laughs> and, uh, I had all these testimonials in the newspaper. And then uh, came an invitation to speak at the uh, Unitarian Church. Franklin, and uh, that was a wild meeting. I mean, the place was just standing room only of all the old conservative people in this Republican conservative And I spoke about Christ and the Spirit, and I sat cross-legged up on their podium, you know, and the thing was absolutely very, very hard. And I became a consultant to the Mayor's Drug Committee. I gave him a long lecture about drugs and the difference between opiates and you know, all this stuff. I played Dr. Albert. I spoke to the Women's Professional and Secretarial Association, their annual their monthly dinner meeting. And I just kept having these donations and public weekly things. Free, no money. Anybody that wanted to come live on the land, they could come as long as they, if they wanted to live on the land, they couldn't use drugs because my contract with my father was to be no drugs. And the kids could come and and I was very, uh, nobody had to pay anything. And Dad said, well, how are you going to live? I said, don't worry, it'll take care of itself. I started out the summer with $300. At one point, I just kept buying rice and stuff. We bought all wholesale food so everybody could buy cheap food. We had a little store there for everybody. They had to buy their own food and provide their own tents. 
And at the end of the summer, when I went to take off, I had a thousand dollars. And I don't know how it came about. Just that the people that had green energy shared it, I guess. I must see how it happened. So there was just a big ball of money sitting there, and people either put on it, put in and took out. And I had never been in a scene that was that pure. I had never, because I'd been through Millbrook and Newton and Mexico and all these things, and I had never been through a scene where nobody was invited. Nobody was invited. There was no game I had going. I, there was no reason why I wanted anybody there. I was perfectly content alone or with people. I didn't need anybody. And everybody came because they were seekers, and the living was very fierce because the mosquitoes were wild and, the, you know, it was, it was rough woods living. And so it didn't collect all the people that just came to hang out in the gloomy scene at first. Later it got a little change of it. But I watched the power of the thirst of people for these kinds of things. There were a lot of people who were ready to go and create a little meditation room out in the woods and go sit out there for a week and then come and share their experiences. And there were many people that were willing to get up at five in the morning and do meditations and and uh, chanting sessions and go and fast and special diets and so on. And these were all of us that were ready to do these things. So I learned from that. Now I'm going to New Mexico. We have a place up in the mountains. A group of people created beautiful, fantastic things. We're going to have 16 people there for the first run, seven weeks. We have eight separate meditation room buildings, and they'll all go into these separate buildings. And it's, again, another experiment. Western ashram. I'm going back to India here from September. And at that point, I hope my karma is complete, my Western karma. Then whether I come back or not doesn't matter. I'll come back or not, depending. But I'll just go and go to the feet of my guru and say, okay, baby, now what? And if he doesn't exist, then whatever happens. I just watch it all unfold. See, I don't, you know, I just watch it unfold. It's extraordinary how it unfolds. You see, the thing is that when the when you keep working in yourself and the spirit stays, something's coming through. People keep reaching, they keep hearing, and the thing keeps gathering, and it's all purely organic. It's just all out of that inner place, not out of... The minute there's an impure thing in it, you know it, and they know it, and everybody knows it, and the thing is that... There are enough people at the level now that they are demanding total truth and total purity. Any sick games, there's just no room for them anymore. Nobody wants Richard Albert around anymore. He's a drag. I think he's a drag, and so does anybody else. He's greedy, lustful, wants power, fame. He's lurking in the wings, waiting to take his just credits all the time. So let him lurk. Not who I am. The uh, Sufi dancing. It's a form of bhakti yoga, the form of yoga of devotion. The in the uh, in you you stand in a circle or you move around in a circle and you're going like uh, at one point you're holding hands and you're going Allahu, Allahu, meaning God He, God He. And then in the middle of the circle, going in an opposite direction, are two people who are going, Yahayahat, Yahayahat, meaning he is light, he is life. 
And you keep doing this, and the rhythm keeps building, and the movement keeps building, and it's a method of trans induction. It's a method of going out beyond your own state into oneness with God. And then you're finally whirling and whirling and whirling and whirling, and that's just taking you out and out and out and out and out until finally you just stop. I have some pictures up in my room. We had one with 50 people in it. I don't know, my father's golf course. <laughs> I got it very far up. At the end, at the end, 50 people lying all over the lawn, you know, just <laughs> looks like after a gas attack. <laughs> I was interested in having all forms of religion, the mysticism of every religion represented this summer. So we did the, uh, we did the uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur services, it's a Hebrew religion. We did uh, a number of uh, we never got to doing the Gregorian chants that I had learned at the Benedictine Monastery. It was too complicated for us. We did a lot of reading from the Bible. And we did the Sufi dancing, and we did a whole day of Zazen from the Buddhist, uh, did a Sashin, a one-day Sashin, with a big stick hitting people on the back when they bend. And, and uh, we did Hindu chanting and all kinds of various forms of meditation, because I really see that the Westerner is interested in that which is the spirit, not in the in the structure of the religion per se, but only the rituals that bring him into the spirit. That's what we're interested in now. That's and I had this most extraordinary meeting because after the Unitarian Church, the secretary of the clergy association of Franklin called and asked if the clergy could all come and visit. So they were going to sort of check me out, I guess. I don't know what. And I said it would be wonderful. No, they asked if I would meet, well, a guy came and he saw me and he asked if I would meet with the clergy at their regular meeting, their, uh, their, you bring up sack lunch meeting. And I said, yes, and he says, I understand you have a temple up here. And I said, no, we don't have a temple because there are no ordained people that would consecrate a temple, but we do have a spiritual meeting house. Would you like to see it? And I took it up and it's, it's in a pine grove and it's a fantastic place. I mean, it's built all with love. It was an exercise in conscious building. That is, everybody had to build it keeping purely conscious with every hammering of nail and so on, which was more or less done. And it's a beautiful building, great big building. Well, he took it and it started and blew his mind. So he said, well, maybe we'll hold our meeting here. I said, well, that'd be great. So 13 ministers came up and we had a big fire in the middle of the, the thing. And like, we had, see, we didn't have enough money to put a floor on, so we had a dirt floor, but the building was all built. We had a big fire in the middle. And uh, it was a rainy day and they all sat, we brought up chairs for them. We all sit on cushions and they sat in chairs around the fire. And for two and a half hours, we discussed the spirit. And all the young people were there, and it was this very, very beautiful, beautiful meeting. And they owned as though as that they had lost the spirit out of their, the meaning out of their lives. And one man went out and he just embraced me and he says, like, this is the first hope I've had in 30 years. And when I was at the Mayor's Drug Committee, I was sitting there and uh, talking, and two nuns were in the audience, and one of them said, uh, may I say something? And I said, yeah. yeah. She said, uh, I think two of your people were at our church last Sunday. And I said, yes, I think they were. I thought, uh-oh, here it comes. Here comes the bomb. I was going to do it. What do they do? Go in with their flies unzipped or something? <laughs> and she said, because uh, I'm constantly was worrying, you know, like, what's going, when is it going to blow up? Because it was so beautiful. I couldn't handle that much beauty either, along with everybody else. She says, they were up at the railing taking uh, communion. 
and she said, the priest passed by, and I couldn't help but notice. She said, the beautific look on that face, she said, it was so spiritual. She said, all I could do was cry. She said, I felt like Christ was in the church. She said, all I want to do is thank you for bringing these young people here. Wow, man. Like, those are hippies. Those are the hippies. We've got a problem. We've got these hippies. <laughs> I dug that the spirit was the spirit, and that there was, and that the exquisite thing is the church has all the rituals and all the structure and all the language the minute the spirit can be invested back in. And the beautiful thing, what I was hoping to do for next summer, since I'm a little scared to do the same thing next summer because of the numbers, I was hoping to get all of the clergy together in Franklin and get us to collaboratively do something next summer. Nobody comes on about their religion. We'll still have it completely interdenominational, all forms available. And no, I mean, a kid was perfectly welcome to come to the scene if he didn't use drugs, to go off to the woods. He never had to come to any meetings. He never had to see anybody. He could just go off and meditate by himself. Or he could come and sit and play his flute all the time. You know, during the hours you could play flutes. I mean, he didn't, no, nobody was, there was no come on to anybody to do anything. And that's the way it's got to be. The thing is that the minute you put it into the hands of men who are traditionalists, they feel, well, we, we have to impose these rituals. And there's none of that at all. That I but I would love to, because I see these kids finally want to come back into the forms of their religions, because that's their karma. I mean, I'm still find, trying to find a way back into Judaism. It's a really heavy religion, I'll tell you. It's really heavy, because it's primarily a folk religion. It's primarily rejected its mystical traditions. Christianity is much more closely linked to mysticism than Judaism is at this point. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.